Hope everyone's having a great Sunday morning. We are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John, and we have made it to chapter 4, which is good. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for your word that we can know you through it, we can understand you, we can respond to you. Thank you for revealing how you have saved us, how you sent your Son to take our sins and give us his right standing, how you have brought us into a new relationship with you, Lord. Thank you. Lord, I pray as we open up your word, as we see Jesus doing ministry, interacting with people, that we can learn from it, we can grow from it, we can be moved by it, that we can know how we apply it to our lives and respond to it. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What stops you from sharing your faith? Now, I just made a big assumption there. I just was assuming that we don't share our faith like we should. And I know what happens when you assume. You make assumptions. And it's an old Seinfeld joke. So, uh, but what, what, what keeps us? I lump myself right there in with us. What keeps us from sharing our faith? We know how important it is. We know it's vital. We know that people, uh, eternal destinies be determined by whether they believe or not. But sometimes stuff keeps us from sharing like we're called to or how we know we're supposed to share. Sometimes we, we feel guilty about it or, and we get upset about it. But a lot of times that doesn't do anything. We still stay in this, this place where we can justify not sharing. Even I do this. And I'm a pastor. You're like, man, you're paid to do that. But even I can justify it. Because if you want to shut down a conversation, the easiest thing to do is tell someone you're a pastor. It shuts it down. Now, that's a justification. Because obviously if I tell them that I'm a pastor, that should mean they expect me to start talking about the faith. But so often, you tell them that, and it shuts it down. So sometimes we feel like that, that conversations are hard to get started. Or maybe we feel like we don't know what to say, or... Who am I to share? Or we don't have it figured out, so why would we be the ones sharing? Whatever it is, we, I think, can make a lot of justifications that we don't, so we don't share. What keeps you from sharing your faith? Because as we've said it before here, and we keep on saying it, that if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are called to this mission of sharing what you believe. It comes together. There are, there's no Christian that's, that's not called to share what they believe with people who don't believe. It's part of the package. Once we know who Christ is, we have to share him with people. And that's what he commands. And something that should spur us on that we get from John chapter 4 is this concept. Everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. We've seen this through the whole Gospel of John. This is what Jesus does. He's willing to talk to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who thinks he has it all together, and he's willing to talk to sinners. But this, the concept is true that we should embrace everyone everywhere needs Jesus because everyone everywhere is in the same place without Jesus, separated from God, under the wrath of God because of their sin. It's only through Jesus that they can have a relationship with God. So everyone everywhere needs Jesus. The self-righteous person who thinks they have it all together needs Jesus. The person who is fully aware of their sin needs Jesus. The person who is successful in life needs Jesus. The failure needs Jesus. Everyone, everywhere needs 
Jesus. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter your social economic status. Everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. People right here need Jesus. People over there need Jesus. People in this nation and that nation and all nations, everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. I think that's probably clear now, but it's true. There's not a single person on this earth that doesn't need Christ. When we have Christ, when we know Christ, guess what keeps us going in Christ? It's Christ himself. We still need Jesus. And so when we open up John chapter 4, we see a story of Jesus interacting with someone because he knows this truth, that everyone everywhere needs him. And so whereas, if you have your Bibles, please open to John chapter 4. And we're going to start walking through this. And this is a larger section of, of Scripture, so we're going to explain it as we go along. So starting in verse 1, this is what it says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So this is setting the scene. As you remember from last week, we talked about how Jesus and John the Baptist were in the same location. They were baptizing, and people kind of were going, hey, who should we follow? And so Jesus learns that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, kind of had heard that he was becoming more popular than John the Baptist. And Jesus knows that it's not yet his time for confrontation. It's not yet time to have that um, very overtly open confrontation between the religious leaders and himself. And so he says, I'm going to go back up to Galilee, my stomping grounds. And so Gal uh, Ju uh, Judea is in the south, and Galilee is in the north, and he has to travel through this region called Samaria. And if you don't know what Samaria is, it's just another region of this town, of this, of this area in uh, Israel, but it's full of Samarians. Makes sense, right? Samaria, Samarians, Samaritans. There's a T in there. So if you, this, these, these are a region full of people that the Jewish people really did not like. And they didn't like them because they considered them racial half-breeds, political misfits, and um, just downright they just really had some racist tendencies towards them. Because Samaria... Samaria was a region of northern Israel that was taken over by the Assyrian Empire. And when this empire took them over, they put a lot of foreign people in the land. And so the Jewish people in that land started intermarrying with these people, and they kind of perverted the, the Jewish faith a little bit. And, and so now the, the purebred Jews who lived in Judea looked upon them kind of with scorn. Like, you have perverted the true faith. You're not really one of us anymore. And so they looked down upon the Samaritans. And so Jesus, now going from the south to the north, has to travel through this region of land called Samaria. And he had to because just geography determines he had to go through there. It's the region between the two places he was going to. And so that sets the scene as Jesus is traveling with his disciples back up to Galilee, which is where he was born, which is where he does the majority of his ministries up in Galilee, and so he's traveling basically to his stomping grounds. So continuing in verse 5, he says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sinkar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob as well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sin uh, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, 
Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And so again, the scene here is Jesus is traveling through this town. And it's a, it's a town with a rich history traced back to Jacob and Joseph. And he sits at this well. And this woman of, Sam, of Samaria comes out to draw water at about the sixth hour, which is noon. Now in this culture, where any culture, I guess, where it's hot, you don't draw water for the day at the hottest part of the day. And so right there we get this sense that instead of drawing water in the early morning, or instead of drawing water in the evening, this woman for some reason is out there at noon to draw water, and Jesus meets her there. And he asks her a simple question, give me a drink of water. We hear that, and we're just like, man, that's such a simple thing. But in their time, in their day, Jesus is breaking all sorts of taboos. For when he is a Jewish man, especially a rabbi, and he speaks to a woman, he is crossing this gender, gender bar barrier that was kind of in the society, that Jewish men really didn't talk to, Jewish, to women at all. That not even that long after Jesus' time, it was kind of codified in tradition that a Jewish man, especially a rabbi, doesn't speak to any woman outside of his wife. There's actually this kind of um, sexism that's going on uh, in this time that Jesus breaks. For there was even debates among religious leaders whether it's worth their time to educate the women in the law. Very sexism. And Jesus says, no, women are valuable, humans should be treated as, as, as high and as honored as high as men. And he breaks this taboo of this gender uh, a barrier. Not only that, but he breaks this barrier between a Jewish person and a Samaritan. That a Jewish person is supposed to look down on this Samaritan. They call Samaritans dog. And guess what? That's not a good thing. I know we like dogs, but that's not a good thing. They look down on, on the Samaritans. And so she's shocked. Jesus is breaking this social taboo, this social conviction, uh, convention, this tradition that he's actually willing to speak to a Samaritan and engage her, not only that, but ask her for a drink of water. And we see through this that he is willing to engage with this woman in this, in this really rich way as he seeks to know her and understand her. And he does this, why? Because everyone, everywhere, needs Jesus. And he knew this. Picking up the story again in verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Jesus engages her, not only asking for a drink, but now he uses that asking for a drink, this ordinary situation of wanting water 
as now a spiritual illustration for her. He says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And this image of living water is one of Jesus' favorite images, but it's a rich image throughout the whole Bible that this is talking not only of a physical thing, because it's, re- it's a really vivid image at this time in an arid environment. Living water, springs of living water, has this connotation of a bubbling fresh spring that would provide refreshment and uh, you know, basically life for your livestock and for your family. But Jesus takes this, and throughout the whole Bible, they take this vivid image of the physical and apply it to the spiritual, where this living water now is talked about something that not only refreshes the body, but it refreshes the soul, that we have life through it. And it's scattered throughout the Bible. Just some illustrations are like in Jeremiah 2.13, talking about God. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That God is the source of refreshment. God is the source of life. He, and people reject him and choose to provide for themselves, which doesn't work. But a more positive image is one that we probably have heard before in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. It says this, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Oh God. This is the image of a deer panting for water and not panting like I'm a little thirsty, but panting like I'm dehydrated. I can't find a source of refreshment and I'm about to die. And he finds it where? In God. Living water. It continues, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So we see this image of living water is a, is a vivid image that has been used throughout the whole Bible. And now Jesus takes this image and he loves this image of living water and he applies it to himself. Actually in John, he does this several times. And sometimes in the book of John, he says, hey, I, can, I am the living water. Take of me and you'll be refreshed. Or sometimes it's like here where he says, I can provide this living water. And he's using this in a very spiritual sense, saying, you have a need that I can meet, this need to be connected with God, this need for refreshment that, re- that brings you eternal life. I have that and then can give that to you. And if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for that. But it's very clear this woman has kind of missed what he's talking about. She's still stuck on the physical, for she says, man, Where can I find this water? Because I don't want to keep coming out of here at noon to pull up this water. And and so it's very clear that she has missed it, as we so often do. But as we see, Jesus knows this, and he continues in verse 16. He says this, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This seems like all of a sudden a switch of conversation topic, doesn't it? That she's like, where is this water? And all of a sudden Jesus says, hey, call your husband. But Jesus knows that she's not grasping what he's laying down. He knows that she's not picking up the spiritual connotation of what he's saying. And so he says, you have a greater need and let's just see where this need is. And so he he kind of pokes her at her need, at her sin, at her shame. And he does this in a loving way, and he says, call 
your husband. And the woman's like, I have no husband. He's like, you're right, you have no husband. But I'm not going to let that comment stay by itself, for you have had five husbands, and the guy you're with right now, he's not your husband. That Jesus, in a loving, caring way, says you have a deeper need than you realize. A need that, that for the, 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 the need for reconciliation for God, a need to kind of resolve the shame that you're dealing with, a need to handle that situation that's keeping you out at a well at noon. That you have this need, and he's exposing it in a gentle and loving fashion and says, This is what's going on, is that you have sin that needs to be dealt with, that you're living in sexual immorality that you are living in an impure relationship and have a history of broken relationships. And so he dresses that. He kind of gently pulls off the band-aid and says, we need to address this. He's not willing to let her hide from the truth. But the great thing about it is how he does it. He points it out. He mentions it. But he doesn't hammer her on it. For she already knows it's wrong, for she already knows the shame of it, and she's already reaping the repercussions of that and this isolation she has from her community. But he brings it up and says it has to be dealt with. It's the same way today. So often, there's so many people just like this woman because this is a rampant problem with humanity. That sexual immorality, the wrong sexual ethics runs rampant through our society, even through our church where people think they can do whatever they want with their body because, hey, it's my body, I can do what I want. But the Bible speaks a different word that says, no, you have to honor God in all things. And so it was our responsibility. I think we can take a cue from Jesus. It's not to hammer people on how they've gone wrong. We lovingly, gently expose it, but don't let them stay where they are. Don't let them just stay hidden behind a true but hiding statement, oh, I have no husband. No, he peeled that back and said, I am not going to condone your life, but I'm also not going to find you by that, for I can see beyond it your value, your worth, and how you can come and how that can all be taken away. And so we take an example from Jesus and we speak the truth with love as we seek to know people. We don't let this slide. We, we let them know where, what the truth is from the Bible. And this woman, I believe, picks up on this truth that he's speaking the spiritual need and she kind of grasps it because her response is, you are her prophet. Because she says, how could you know this any other way? But you're a prophet. You, you know things no other person could know. And so she recognized that, but also drives her, as we see in the next few verses, to seek that spiritual reconciliation. For as we see in verses uh, starting in 20, it says, Our father, this is a woman speaking, she says, You're a prophet. And then she goes, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. 
Jesus said to her, I am. I who speak to you am he. The woman responds, you're a prophet, and then we see it almost like a, another change in topic. She goes to the, the um, theological. She starts pointing out the difference between the Samaritans and how they worship and how the Jews worship. And some people might read that and say, man, this woman's trying to deflect him, that he kind of approached her sin, and she's like, hey, let's talk about something different. Let's talk about the theological. But I see it a little differently. I think he is approaching her sin, and so she recognizes her shame and her need, and so what is her response? How can I receive that reconciliation with God that I need? Do the Samaritans have the answer? Do the Jews have the answer? Who's right? Where can I meet God? Do I worship on this mountain? Or do I worship in Jerusalem like the Jews say? What do I do? And we see this, I think we see the struggle with this woman saying, where do I seek that reconciliation? Where do I seek an answer or a covering of my shame? Where do, I, where do I find completeness and wholeness? And Jesus says, hey, it's not about where you worship. It's not about whether the Samaritans are right or the Jews are right. He makes a point that the Samaritans have gone off track but the, and salvation is from the Jews because that's the line that God is continuing and that's where he comes from and so salvation is from the Jews. But he says the point is not where you worship, it's how you worship. The point is that when you come to know the Father, the, the true way we worship is that we're connected to him by spirit and truth, that we're connected to the Father by his Holy Spirit who he's given us, that we're connected to the Father by the truth of who he is, and that truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is telling her there's coming a day very soon where it doesn't matter if you worship on this mountain or in that temple. What matters if you know Jesus as who he, who he claims to be, that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, and he is the way to God. He says that is what matters if we know him and are connected to him. And he makes the probably the most blatant self-disclosure that he has to date in the gospel. He says, I am the Messiah, basically. Because she says, I know the Messiah is coming. And he says, I who speak to you am he. And so he's pointing out that he is the way, the truth. Life. He's pointing out that he is the Messiah, the one promised by God. He's pointing out that if you want reconciliation with God, if you want a covering of your shame, if you want a dealing with your sin, you know me. You can have it. And we see how the woman reacts to his, his uh, proclaiming, starting in verse 27, it says, Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, why, What do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. I love this because we see now the first evangelist. This woman hears what Jesus says, and what is her response? She hightails it back into town. She came out in the heat of the day to draw water, and she leaves her jar because she's so excited, she's passionate, and she runs back into town and says, come and see this guy. He told me all that I ever did. He knows me. He, he knows me. Come and see him. Could this be the Christ, the one we've been waiting for? We see this passion from her because he, she gets a glimpse of who Jesus is and how he's meeting her where she needs him to meet her. And what is her response is, other people need to know this. 
Other people need to hear this. And I love this because this is a woman who was isolated from her town. She was avoiding all the other women by drawing water at a different time of day. But yet what does she do when she meets Jesus? She runs back into town to those people she used to avoid to share who Christ is, to encourage them to get a picture of him, to come and see who he is. Because we share what we're excited about, don't we? When I watch a cool Netflix special, I share it. I'm like, hey, you guys got to watch this. This is a tiny little picture. But when we come to know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gives us a new creation, makes us a new creation, who brings us into connection with our, our Father, the Almighty God, who saves us, we should be excited and we should be sharing that. Saying, this has changed us. This is someone who knows me and all I ever did and still loves me. You need to know who he is and come see him. So we see that in the disciples kind of gets that, and the people are now starting to come out from the town to see this Jesus. But before we get there, we get this little aside between Jesus and the disciples, starting in verse uh, 31. It says, Meanwhile, disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to, know, uh, to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes a harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reapers may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one weeps and, another, and one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you do not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Picture the scene. The people of this town are now coming out because the woman ran and tell them, and the disciples are there and say, hey, Rabbi, teacher, you got to eat. You haven't eaten all day. We went into town to get you food. Will you please eat? And again, Jesus, as he always seems to do, he takes an average, ordinary situation, says it's drawing water or food, and he gives it that spiritual twist. And he says, I have food you don't even know about. It's to do the will of the Father who sent me. And, the, and the, again, disciples, they're kind of knuckleheads. They're like, man, did someone else bring him food? And they they clearly missed the point. He says, no, look, lift up your eyes. People are streaming out of this town to hear me. The harvest is here. You say four months and then then you're going to have a harvest. Kind of analogy of it's going to take a while for it to work. He says, lift up your eyes. It's now. The food that I have to do the will of the Father sent me is to live his mission. I came for this reason, Jesus says. I came so people, those people, can know me. He says, lift up your eyes. You are a part of this. You're part of this mission. Some people reap, some people sow, but it doesn't matter. It's a team effort. We all share in reaping this harvest for God that people would come to know him. It's this vivid imagery that he uses saying, hey, we're in this together, we're on mission, and if you do the mission, this is what sustains me, that people know me, people come to faith in me, people can have new life in me, and it's happening right now. And so it ends, this section kind of ends in verse 39. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Many believed. They rushed out of town. They heard him. He spoke to them himself, and they believed in him. It's not only because of the woman's testimony, but now they saw him for themselves. And so the woman's testimony was confirmed in their own lives, in their own interaction with Jesus. And they believed him, and they declared Jesus, this is the Savior of the world. And in this small little section at the end, we see how faith can spread like wildfire. That one person seeing the truth of Jesus can bring a whole town to an understanding of who he is or at least bring them so that they, that they can hear from him himself. And so we see this woman's passion. We see how these people have cried out, man, this is the truth. I've seen it for real. And when I read this passage, I cannot help but pray that let this be our community. That this happened back here in the town of Samaria. Why can't it happen here right now? For when we have these amount of people who believe in Jesus Christ and are excited and passionate about what he has done for them, as we go out and we proclaim to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, just come and see what he has done. Come and see how he has known us. The wildfire effect it can have on the, our community. As people see that truth, know that truth, respond to what you said, go to a church that preaches that truth, and come to know Jesus. That this whole town, it seems, is coming to know who Jesus is, and that's the same hope, the same dream, the same passion that we should have, that our whole town, no matter where we live, come to know the truth of Christ, and that he can use us to do that. Why? Because everyone, everywhere, needs Jesus. That we're called to evangelism. We're called to speak the truth that Jesus is that spring of living water that satisfies your soul. That gives life, eternal life. That we're called not just to live in a way where people see that you're different, but actually speak the words, the truth, that God created this world and it was good. But humans rebelled. They went their own way. And because of our rebellion, we're in sin. But Jesus, but God loves us so much that he sent Jesus, his son, to live the perfect life, the sinless life, the life we can never live. To die on the cross, a death that we do deserve. But in this exchange that he, when he was nailed to the cross, that our sins were nailed to the cross with him if we believe in him. And that he gives us his right standing before God. And that he did not stay dead, but rose from the grave, giving us life and life eternal. That we know that truth and we articulate that truth and we speak that truth to anyone and everyone who is willing to hear that truth. That in a winsome way, with love and, and kindness, we seek to speak that. Saying, Jesus came to save sinners of which I am the worst, and so he can save you too. Because everyone everywhere needs Jesus. When you read this passage, obviously I see a great evangelism kind of passage and a, a way in which Jesus does it and how a woman gets excited about it and how a whole village kind of comes to faith about it. And I think when we look at this passage, we see the answers to so many objections on what we use to keep us from sharing our faith. 
We see the answers right there. Sometimes we have the, the um, objection that, hey, I live in the Christian bubble. I don't really don't know anyone that is not a believer, so how can I share this? And that could be true. Maybe you live in a life where you have no Christians around you. I know what it's like. I, I went to seminary. I lived on campus. I know what it's like to live where it seems like everyone you see during a day is a Christian. But what does Jesus do in this situation? He goes where he knows there are no believers. He sits and he waits for an opportunity, looks for an opportunity, makes an opportunity. He looks at a woman in need and knows her. I think there we can't object to not sharing our faith saying, well, I don't know anyone who's not a believer. All right, find one. Look for one. They're all around us. They're all around us, and we need to keep our eyes open to the possibility that maybe we can start a conversation that plants the seed of faith, that maybe we can water on someone else's planting that seed, and something can happen, that we look around for those opportunities. Well, some of you might object, well, I don't know how to get started. I don't know how to start that conversation. How, how do I bring up spiritual things? Again, we can look to Jesus, and we see a suggestion, maybe. He uses water to move into the spiritual talk. With his disciples, he uses food to move into spiritual talk. That you can actually use any and every ordinary, everyday situation to start talking about the meaning of life. That you use these situations and look for opportunities on how you can take something physical and go a little deeper and you can maybe start a conversation that way. Maybe people have the objections, well, I don't know if someone needs Jesus. I don't know if they're a believer or not. Well, to that I would just say, everyone everywhere needs Jesus. But also I would just say, do what Jesus did. Get to know people. He got to know this woman at a well. He engaged in a conversation. I go, but that was Jesus. He has that, that knowledge that we don't have. He could call that woman out for her past. I was like, yeah, we don't have that knowledge and we won't have that knowledge about someone. But guess what? We can get that knowledge if you ask questions, if you talk to someone, if you care about them, if you get to know them, get to know people, and you can speak into their lives in rich ways. Get to know people just for their sake because people need to be known. We need to be known. Befriend them. Love them as they need to be loved. And we, through that we can share who Christ is, and we can be bold and lovingly address where they need Christ in their life. Well, some people might say, well, well I get tongue-tied. I, don't, I, don't, I can't articulate the gospel. I can't really express what, you know, the, the theological points of the Trinity, or I can't really express you know, exactly what happens on the cross. I can't, I can't really speak that. And so what if I mess up? What if I stumble when I'm trying to speak that? And to that I said, I think we got a great example in that woman, Samaritan woman. She was not theologically educated. She was, she was not told how to evangelize. What did she do? She was excited. She was passionate. And so she ran and she told people, I saw the Christ. I saw him speak to me. And anyone and everyone who has met Jesus Christ in their life can do the same. We can speak to how he has worked in our lives. We can speak our testimony built and founded on the foundation of the truth of the gospel that Christ has saved us. We can speak that to people. Maybe the final objection, and I'm sure there's more, but the final one I'm going to hit is 
man, this is a heavy responsibility. I can't convince anyone of the truth of this. And to that, I say, yeah, you can't. And that's not your job. Your job is to speak the truth. That you look at, uh, you, you, you speak the truth, you look and see the harvest is here, and that's going to take a group of people to reap this harvest. And you know that your job is just to share what you know and what Christ has done in your life. I think one of the big problems we have when we start sharing our faith is that we, we expect that God requires us to step up the bat and hit a home run every single time. We expect that God says, you've got to bring those people to faith whether they like it or not. And so you better be hitting that home run. You have to have an answer to all the questions. You have to be winsome, and, 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 but also bold and call out their sin, but also in a loving way. And you have to do all these things. And we think we put this, we heap this responsibility on us that we have to hit this home run every single time. But that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to just step up to bat. Share your faith. You might whiff. It might go down in a dumpster fire. But guess what? You've done your part and God takes care of the rest. That you do your part, you step in the bite. Maybe, maybe you get a single. Maybe people would just consider what you're saying. And that is a win for Christ. God does the rest. He just asks us to do our part, which is sharing how he has lived and worked in our lives. Everyone, everywhere, needs Jesus. I love this, this passage because we see how good news spreads. Isn't that what good news does? The gospel is called good news. It's not good advice. It's not good steps to a better life. It's good news. And what do you do with good news? You proclaim it. You shout out the truth. We're not proclaiming, hey, you got to get busy, you got to do this mission, you got to do these six steps, and then your life will be better. You got to do this or that, you got to achieve something, you got to do this. No, we proclaim someone came. Someone came and fulfilled the mission. Someone came and achieved salvation. Someone came and accomplished everything you need for life and godliness. And that is the truth, that's the good news of the gospel, and we proclaim it and we say it can be yours as well. And so we share that, and it spreads because it's good. We shout it out because it's good. We spread it just like the townspeople spread that good news among themselves. They saw the truth and responded to it. We lovingly and boldly insert that good news into conversations and in relationships that need it, and we share it because we are commanded to do it. Because everyone, everywhere, needs Jesus. So let's be passionate about this news. And let's share it as we've been called to do it. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the good news that you saved, that you have brought us to salvation through your Son. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do in our lives. And how you give us the energy and the encouragement to take those steps to share the faith as well as to live out the truth that we know. Lord, I ask for everyone here that we can be encouraged, pulled forward by this truth, that we can share like we've been called to share, that we can be brave because we know that it's God who changes hearts. I just pray that we can take to heart that our mission 
is to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, and that starts with them coming to know who you are. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.